from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Happy Friday, listeners. This is Washington Watch, and I'm Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this afternoon. We're pleased to have you with us today, and you've made it because it's Friday evening. We've got another packed show, and we'll be continuing our discussion of some of the issues that we touched on yesterday because they are so timely and because there are developments new every day that we want you to be aware of. The White House hosted its Summit on Human Trafficking today, in which President Trump made clear he is taking taking aggressive steps towards stopping this plague in the United States by expanding the White House Domestic Policy Office through appointment of a dedicated individual to focus exclusively on combating human trafficking. I've got FRC's Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy, Petrina Bosley, who has a new piece out at the Federalists to discuss both the summit and the connection between sex trafficking and abortion. In my second and third blocks, we continue our discussion on the transgender tsunami, and you'll get a chance to hear from a remarkable mother who experienced the painful realities of it firsthand. Elaine Davidson with the Kelsey Coalition has a lot to say about being stripped of her parental rights, the indoctrination her daughter faced, and effects of the transgender movement on vulnerable kids. And in our final segment, as we discussed, HB 1057 has passed the South Dakota House and is headed to the Senate for a vote and hopefully, ultimately, ratification by Governor Nome. But are proponents of the legislation overstating the harm caused by medical intervention of gender-confused kids? Are we getting the whole story by activists pushing hormone and surgical treatments? Well, I'll talk with an expert, Dr. Andre Von Moll, a board-certified physician and co-chair of the Committee on Adolescent Sexuality at the American College of Pediatricians, who has testified in multiple state chambers on this precise issue. As a reminder, our podcast is located at TonyPerkins.com. You can also find us on any one of your preferred podcast platforms. Follow Tony on Twitter at T. Perkins or me at Sarah P. Perry. If you go to TonyPerkins.com, you'll also see a link to our Israel trip and registration there, which I encourage as someone who's been there for three consecutive visits. It is a trip you won't want to miss. Well, we're going to talk about an issue in our first block here that isn't one that's necessarily palatable, but one about which this administration is incredibly serious about combating. The White House hosted today its summit on human trafficking. President Trump then made clear he is taking very aggressive steps towards stopping the plague in the U.S. He is actually appointing by executive order an individual to focus exclusively on combating human trafficking. Trump was joined at the summit today by Attorney General Barr, who had this to say about the issue of human trafficking as illustrated by one particular case. Emblematic in many ways is one horrific case I was briefed on recently in the Southern District of New York. A very dedicated team of prosecutors doggedly pursued a few little leads and ended up convicting 19 defendants in Manhattan with sex trafficking of minor girls and young women in the New York State child welfare system. In other words, children whose society had a special obligation to protect ended up being instead 
exploited. In this, as in every case, a person who gains leverage or power over a vulnerable victim exploits them for their own gain. There's nothing more predatory or disgusting. President Trump himself also addressed attendees at the summit and spoke on the administration's record on human trafficking and what the executive order would also include. Let's listen. We have signed more legislation on human trafficking by far than any other administration has even thought about. We enacted bills. Thank you. And we'll do what's necessary. We enacted bills to fight sex trafficking, increase support for survivors, and raise the standards by which we judge whether other countries are meeting their duty to fight human trafficking. This order expands prevention education programs, promotes housing opportunities for survivors, and prioritizes the removal of child sexual abuse material from the Internet. Well, joining me now is FRC's own director of life, culture, and women's advocacy, who, among other issues, does follow the human trafficking issue. Petrina Mosley also has a Federalist piece just out on how abortion and sex trafficking are linked abuses against women. Petrina, welcome back to Washington Watch. Sarah, thanks for having me back. So let's talk first about the issue of human trafficking to try to get a sense of the problem. How prevalent is the problem? And is this an other country problem or is it something we struggle with here in the United States? Sarah, human trafficking is a worldwide issue. And unfortunately, the U.S. is driving that demand for particularly sex trafficking. And it's so refreshing to have an administration that is serious about this issue because human trafficking is a billion-dollar industry. In fact, it's a $150 billion industry. Oh, and wow. it's because, yes, it is because there is a love for the, for the love of power. There's a, a love and a worship for sex. And, of course, there's a love uh, for money. This is an industry that makes money. And uh, according to the Department of Homeland Security, human trafficking is the second most profitable form of transactional crime in the world next to drug trafficking. Now, here's oh. why. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous because you drugs, you sell it once and it's gone. With human beings, traffickers and exploiters think I can reuse people as products over and over again. So it's Absolutely. highly profitable. So this is why this is an industry that is making money around the world, but we are going to be the leaders in combating it. So what, in addition to appointing this particular individual, a dedicated individual to track closely the problem of human trafficking, what else did this executive order cover today? The executive order covers additional funds for educating the public, especially when it comes to schools. Uh, the education in the, in the classroom is where this issue needs to be talked about. I mean, young people are vulnerable to this because Sex trafficking and human trafficking is mostly taking place online. Uh, sex trafficking is the most primary form of human trafficking, and it preys after vulnerable girls and little boys. So it's good for our education system to know what's going on and how to let young people be aware of when they're being preyed upon. Um, this executive order also prioritizes taking down exploitive images of children being abused on the Internet. Like, mm. the Internet now is where modern slavery is being fought. 
is not so much as a woman being taken off the street and, and grabbed in an alley somewhere. We're having people who are master criminals who are able to do dark web encryption to feed a sick appetite of children being sexually abused, girls being sexually abused, videotaping it and putting it on the Internet. So just this past year, the FBI, along with other government agencies, seized a website that was based in South Korea that had over 200,000 videos of children and infants being abused sexually. This oh, is what's wow. going on here in human trafficking. They make money off of this continually from people who have a sick appetite for sex. And it's so great to have an administration who is literally putting their money where their mouth is on this issue, uh, which is not easy to do. You have many people who are in positions of power who don't want to do anything about this issue because they are partakers of this injustice as well. That's why progress on human trafficking and sexual exploitation is slow, but we finally have an administration that's serious about this issue and bringing it more of a bringing more to a focal point for our society because it is happening all around us every day and primarily online. Now, let me ask you another question. This is January 31st. We are at the tail end of Human Trafficking Awareness Month and Sanctity of Human Life Month. So in a perfectly timed op-ed that went up today at The Federalist, you wrote about how there is a connection between abortion and sex trafficking, a connection that I had never thought about before. But you really make some compelling points here. What is that connection between sex trafficking and abortion? Well, and you look at numerous surveys of sex trafficking survivors, across their stories globally, abortion was the key component of their story. Um, and in one study that was done at the Beasley Institute highlighted that very fact that out of 66 survivors in this subset, of the 66 survivors of sex trafficking, among them were 114 abortions. Right, so nearly two for every individual who is sex trafficked. 66 women, 114 abortions. That's something that we have to let sink into our minds and to our hearts, that both of these are businesses, abortion and sex trafficking are businesses that exploit women. Uh, Oftentimes, traffickers may know that pregnancy is a risk of the business in order to keep their product, a.k.a. the women, on the street, they force them into abortion so that they can continue to make money off of them. And many times, these victims come into contact with clinics for their abortion. 30% of the people surveyed in this particular study by the Beasley Institute said that they went to Planned Parenthood. And many of the yeah. of audience knows that Planned Parenthood has been caught numerous times aiding and abetting sex traffickers and covering up sexual abuse and rape. Uh, it's time for us as a society to recognize that we can't just be woke when it comes to sex trafficking. Everybody wants to get on board with that and be we're anti-sex trafficking. But we have to realize that, that there is a connection to abortion as well. We have to be just as loud about combating that, um, that these two are inseparably linked and they exploit women, and they are both an affront to human dignity. 
So Planned Parenthood's most recent financial reports, they've got a $1.6 billion revenue reporting. And one has to think that this is an organization, not benign in nature, but one that is distinctly and universally out to make a profit, no matter what that looks like. The statistics that you cite in this op-ed are truly mind-boggling, Petrina. The Urban Institute, who interviewed pimps and traffickers, found that they can make anywhere from 5000 to 32000 a week. Mm-hmm. So understanding that sex trafficking is truly a global industry and that women and girls make up 71% of the victims here. This is a uniquely specific situation for those individuals who find themselves impacted by this. So in the minute we have left, Petrina, what can the average person do to combat human trafficking when the problem seems so big? You know, one of the things that was shared today at the Human Trafficking Summit at the White House was the importance of faith-based communities, the importance of faith-based advocates. Um, These victims, they're still alive. They're still out there. We're not talking about young women and girls who are dead, thankfully. We're talking about young women and girls who are still alive, who just need someone to see them, to recognize the signs of human trafficking, and to welcome them into services. Uh, And no one does that better than faith-based groups, and that was recognized today at the White House. So I encourage churches and small groups to get educated on this issue and see what your church can do. Petrina Mosley, FRC's Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Dignity. Coming up next, what are the long-term effects of gender reassignment drugs and surgery? Well, I will have an interview with a very special individual who's experienced this in a very personal way. Elaine Davidson with Kelsey Coalition joins me next. The rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions. But the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemicalabortion. China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreams sexual exploitation, 
transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. What other trip to Israel can you take that combines walking where Jesus walked with meeting today's Israeli leaders? This is Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council, inviting you to spend an incredible nine days in Israel with me, General Jerry Boykin, and former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from June the 2nd through the 12th. You'll discover the roots of your faith and learn from experts about the geopolitical landscape of the region. For more information, visit TonyPerkins.com or call 844-872-5155. We all need to be lectured sometimes. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry. I'm sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday afternoon. TonyPerkins.com is the website for today's podcast. And find us on any SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes platform, wherever you get your good audio listening. Well, the harms caused by gender reassignment drugs and surgery seem very theoretical until they come home to roost. So the question is being asked by a lot more people as the trans movement continues to surge in popularity. But that answer for a lot of teens and parents is confusion and regret. Joining me now to talk about its very personal impact on her family is Elaine Davidson with the Kelsey Coalition. She saw the process of her daughter's transition encouraged by mental health professionals. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Okay, so first of all, tell me about the Kelsey Coalition. What is it and what does it do? Well, Catherine Cave, who is the founder of the the Kelsey Coalition, has done an absolutely outstanding job in bringing people together, uh, not only concerned parents of gender-confused children, uh, but doctors and uh, teachers and detransitioners. And the common goal is to stop medical harms from happening to children and young people. And uh, we are nonpartisan. We will work across the aisle with the left or the right um, because we have one common important goal in all of this. And uh, she's really just been absolutely dynamic. So let me ask you, because we are talking about a coalition that works together to prevent the harm against these children, I know you have a personal story, and I know radio is short and sound bites are very clipped, but you had a daughter who experienced this firsthand, and you wrote a tremendous op-ed that has been nearly, now at this point, almost a year old, which... Seems like it was just written yesterday. And your op-ed was specifically on the fact that your daughter identified as transgender and you were powerless to stop doctors from harming her. So tell me, and her decision, her representation that she was actually a boy that identified as a girl, from that point forward, what was the chronology in the loss of your parental rights and her entire life being turned upside down? Well, she announced she was transgender at age 14, which seems to be a pretty typical age for these kids, most of uh, whom are girls. Um, many have mental health issues and or are on the autism spectrum. Um, and... 
she went through some indoctrination in school uh, prior to announcing she was trans. I was not aware of it at that time. Uh, there was a lot of gender identity ideology being pushed. Um, she'd spent a lot of time on the Internet. Um, she'd had some traumatic events in her life. Uh, but prior to this, she was really uh, quite a happy child. Uh, she was boy crazy. She was pretty normal. Um, her personality changed drastically when she announced she was trans, um, and she went from being sweet and loving to really rather rageful um, and vulgar, which is uh, common with a lot of these kids, as I've been told by other parents. I struggled to find help. Instead, uh, teachers, doctors, therapists all pushed her toward um, a medical pathway uh, that she's still on. And uh, when I realized therapy wasn't helping anything, I took her out. Um, she reported me to the Department of Child Services. They investigated, found that she was well cared for, but forced me to meet with a female-to-male transgender person to educate me on uh, mm -hmm. the importance of affirming gender identity and told me to call her by her preferred pronouns. Um, she ran away. There was really very little I could do to stop her. Um, so in Oregon, at the age of 17, she was able to change her sex and name in court without my knowledge and undergo a double mastectomy and hysterectomy, while without my knowledge, much less permission. Uh, the law in Oregon allows children over 14 to make med medical decisions without parental consent. Um, the surgeries were done on an outpatient basis, um, which only required a few visits to a therapist with a master's in social work. No psychologist, no psychiatrist, no years of therapy like many people think. Um, I had previously raised uh, concern to therapists that I believe she's on the autism spectrum, and I still do, um, but they dismissed it and instead just uh, really pushed her toward uh, medical transition. Um, I found out about the surgeries after the fact, um, and uh, I found out through social media when I saw um, a photo of um, her breasts that had been uh, cut off and were covered with um, bloody bandages. Um, when she was 19, she underwent a radial forearm phalloplasty. I knew about this beforehand. I desperately tried to stop it. I flew to Portland twice. Um, I, I begged everyone I could. I begged her. I couldn't stop it. Um, so all I, all I could do was be there for her. Um, and this is a very, very mutilating surgery. Let me ask um, you this, Elaine, because the mm -hmm. story is so compelling and you make you make so many points that I want to address. But understanding time, first, I heard you mention the autism spectrum. Now, I am the the parent of a child on the autism spectrum. And having spoken with psychiatrists and neurologists, we know that these kids are prone to taking up an idea and perseverating on it, becoming obsessed about that particular idea. And for someone like your daughter, assuming that she is on the autism spectrum and nobody knows your daughter better than you, this is an idea that percolates with the suggestion of one or two small things, but upon which she can repeat and convince herself of its truth. Add to that the indoctrination coming from schools, and let me tell our parents listening, if you don't think this is coming to your school or that you don't need to pay attention to drag queen story hours or curriculum or gender sensitivity training, 
you need to listen hard to this segment. Elaine, we're going to continue our discussion right after this on Washington Watch. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm continuing my discussion with Elaine Davidson, who is with Kelsey Coalition, who has specific and individual experience with a child identifying as transgender and ultimately succumbing to what appears to be popular suggestions. And for a lot of these girls, a lot of these adolescent girls, we've heard the term social contagion, which takes place predominantly in middle school and high school girls and was the case in the 1980s with anorexia. The suggestion of something, finding friends who are doing it, being fed by social media imagery, all of these contribute to a young adolescent's woman's state of mind about what is permissible, what is cool, what is acceptable, and where they will find meaning. So, Elaine, I want to ask you this. We've talked a little at the beginning of this show and on the past about lawmakers in South Dakota and the feeling behind what Representative Fred Deutsch was doing when he introduced the Protecting Vulnerable Kids Act precisely to prevent this from happening. But another issue here is truly that stripping away of parental rights. You must have felt completely powerless. Yes, exactly. Um, it, it's just an absolute nightmare for a mother to live through uh, why we are letting children make life-altering, permanent, irreversible decisions about their bodies and about their health when when we have enough sense to not let them get tattoos until they're 18 or drink until uh, they're 21 is really beyond me. Um, I think this law in South Dakota is a good start. Um, 16, though, it's, it's still extremely young, and, and the most vulnerable age group in this really is the older teenagers and the young adults. Mm. Um, when their parents just absolutely have zero say in anything. Um, but, you know, in Oregon, of course, because the, the law allows children over 14, it's, it's even worse. Well, um, and, it, and it's spreading. <laughs> in the same way that you cannot retransition and fully regain all of the physical manifestations or the health you had before subjecting yourself to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgical interventions. The body, once marred, is permanently marred. Why do you think this process is so heavily recommended when the effects are irreversible? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, there seems to be quite a bit of funding behind it. Uh, there seems to be a lot of corporations that are on board and, in fact, will threaten to pull out of uh, states like South Dakota if they enact laws protecting children. Um, but uh, it's, it's a moneymaker. Certainly big pharma doctors are making a lot of money off of this. And uh, they're, meanwhile, 
These children are being harmed. There are thousands of detransitioners coming out, uh, realizing um, what horrible choices they made as basically children. And uh, it's just tragic for everybody. Parents are victims in this as well, uh, along with grandparents, siblings, and others. What I find heartbreaking is really there is a kind of pernicious, socially driven capitalism at work here, right? So we know that the LGBTQ industry is over $400 billion, sorry, $400 million a year. That's global spending on the LGBT issue, the lifestyle, the platform advocacy from 2003 to 2013, funding for trans issues increased eight times and quadrupled from 2003 to 2012. I, I have to tell you that I'm seeing so much behind the scenes that looks to be naked capitalistic greed. And the individuals funneling money into this are, as the Federalist printed back in early 2018, when we never thought we would have to be having a discussion about whether or not we could eliminate the possibility from 16-year-olds being medically and surgically harmed without parental consent. In 2018, two years ago, a full two years ago, the Federalist published a piece called Who Are the Rich White Men Institutionalizing Transgender Ideology? And I will say Big Pharma has a very big stake in that as well. So, Elaine, I commend you, first, for your courage, second, for your ability to come on this show, because I know every time you tell this story, I know as a fellow mother, it has got to break your heart. So let me just tell you, on behalf of FRC and myself, I want to tell you that we love you and that we're praying for you and that we are praying that that sweet daughter returns home like the prodigal son, because we know that there are miracles at work for those of us who trust in him. Elaine Davidson has been my guest with the Kelsey Coalition today. As you can see, this issue hits close to home for those of us who are parents. And when Fred Deutsch out in South Dakota exhibits the courage of character, mind, and presence to introduce a piece of legislation that finally says enough regardless of how he is critiqued by the left-wing cancel culture trans mob. We will continue to move forward when our children's livelihood, lives, health, and safety are at stake. I'm going to continue this discussion about some of the medical impacts, what we are not being told by, quote, doctors about the junk science fueling the transgender moment. Dr. Andre Von Moll of the American Academy of Pediatricians, American College of Pediatricians, joins me next on Washington Watch.
In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions, but the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemical abortion. China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreamed sexual exploitation, transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. What other trip to Israel can you take that combines walking where Jesus walked with meeting today's Israeli leaders? This is Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council, inviting you to spend an incredible nine days in Israel with me, General Jerry Boykin, and former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from June the 2nd through the 12th. You'll discover the roots of your faith and learn from experts about the geopolitical landscape of the region. For more information, visit TonyPerkins.com or call 844-872-5155. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry, your Director of Partnerships, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday afternoon. Go to TonyPerkins.com. We have got plenty of information, links, pieces, Everything that you need to help flesh out today's segment so that you can read it and study it on your own. We pride ourselves here at FRC in providing resources that can help you make a difference for faith, family, and freedom. Well, we just spoke with Elaine Davidson with the Kelsey Coalition and her experience about having lost a child to the transgender cult. And it truly is cultish. And in fact, my next guest who I had the privilege of interviewing at the Values Voter Summit panel on the transgender movement this past October, is Dr. Andre Von Mole. He's a board-certified practicing physician and co-chair of the American College of Pediatricians Committee on Adolescent Sexuality. Dr. Von Mole, so good to talk to you again. Hi, Sarah. Good to talk to you as well. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about using the language of science to camouflage what is clearly not science in this. And you are an individual who has not only been studied and has received these medical certifications, who deals with these children in sort of the adolescent throes of angst, but you've also testified multiple times in front of state legislatures on these precise issues. So I want to talk about HB 1057. And this, again, common sense legislation, his detractors, Representative Deutsch's detractors, called it unnecessary and duplicative. But as somebody who has studied this issue, who works in this field, as a physician yourself, 
Do you feel that there is a stated need for this bill? Yes, we do. The medical communities uh, haven't been doing what they're supposed to do in advancing what is truly evidence-based medicine. And that's a situation where kids are being harmed now. Uh, that's when the law does step in on, on any topic, really. Um, this particular case, straight up with the ethics, what are the ethics of permanently medicalizing uh, a child with a condition that has an 85% chance of desistance you know, mm. of going away on its own by adulthood, right. all, all based on a self-diagnosis. There's nothing else in medicine that's like this. I'm shocked by the fact that the DSM does indicate that 85% of these individuals, if left alone during puberty, will ultimately come to accept their natal gender identity. So, in other words, the sex that they obviously are, that they are born into. And which adolescent among us has not felt at some point as if their body doesn't make sense? I I mean, the very nature of puberty is such that it requires awkwardness. And I should know this. I have three teenagers living in my house right now. But I will tell you, I'm shocked that it has risen to the level of needing to be cured, of being a disease in search of a cure to which we have pointed the guns of pseudoscience and big moneyed pharma. And we have decided that the situation at hand is so dire that we're going to force a new Lexicon. We're going to get everyone to subscribe to the same language and use the same preferred pronouns and identify that biological reality is not, in fact, reality, but is fungible. So yeah, and you're, let's talk- you really touched on something there with the uh, semantic contagion as well as the social contagion. Yes. And when, when people when people aren't familiar with certain ideological terms, it would never dawn on you to interpret your life situation and your life problems in those terms. But when those semantics come into popular parlance, transgenderism, uh, maybe you're a, a boy trapped in a girl's body, kids start to look through that lens and things get invented that don't exist. So I want to talk a little bit about the specifics of the medical aspect, because there are numerous medical interventions and there's sort of a sliding scale of intervention here. Talk to me a little bit about what's generally employed and what are some of these irreversible damaging effects in this transgender transition process? Well, the first thing your audience has to recognize is what I'm going to talk to you about real quickly here with the uh, 2017 Endocrine Society guidelines is not the standard of care. And interestingly, on page 3895, they say themselves, nor do they establish a standard of care. And this stuff's being promulgated around the country and around the world as though it were. The international standard of care is called watchful waiting, and that includes Mm. the requirement of extensive psychological support and evaluation both for the child and the family because you are sure to find multiple problems in both. There's going to be a high rate of mental health problems. Obviously, the neurodevelopmental problems, we know that... uh, Kids with autism spectrum are particularly vulnerable uh, to this and to being overrepresented in in the so-called community. Uh, Personality disorders, obviously, you know, the things anybody would think of, uh, adverse childhood events, traumas, uh, and so forth. But add to that, again, the fact that it's become such a social contagion 
and, and supposedly, you know, so cool even on campuses. You can go from being, you know, uh, uh, you know, a kid who's not getting much attention to the bell of the ball just by saying, hey, I'm trans. But in terms of these endocrine society guidelines, which, by the way, state they are based on a strength of evidence that is low to very low on each and every recommendation pertaining to minors. So th- th- mm. this can't be the standard of care. It's not evidence-based medicine. But the, the threefold approach, actually fourfold, first is social transitioning. You know, the idea that you start addressing this kid as a member of the opposite sex, uh, which, you know, if you think about it, of course, that's just further conditioning the child to stay that way. Um, I don't think that avoids problems. Next would be puberty blocking. If you do that at Tanner stage two, just before puberty starts, um, the way the uh, endocrine society guidelines recommend, then, you know, you're you're pretty much working toward sterility there because the eggs and sperm haven't had a chance to develop in the first place. You follow that with cross-sex hormones. Now you're assuring sterility and infertility. It says so in the literature from multiple countries. And then uh, the option of what we used to call sex reassignment surgery, what they now call gender affirmation surgery, or even gender confirmation surgery. You see how these neologisms, this nomenclature is just designed to convince, you know, just from the get-go. Right. Uh, and, and, the, and the thing is, kids have developing brains. Anybody with kids knows this. You know, that uh, frontal cortex, that's that's your inhibition center. It's not fully developed till your mid-20s. Add to that the amygdala, the main emotional part of the brain, also is not well-developed yet, let alone well-connected to that inhibition center, which, you know, explains for a lot of teen behavior when, when they get kind of crazy and uh, <laughs> having too much fun amongst themselves. Not that I would know. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't like that either. I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, so... You know, these are things we protect kids from everything else. We don't let them drive till they're 16. We don't let them sign on contracts till they're 18. We decided right. we don't let them drink in this country till they're 21, and all with good reason. So the idea that a minor would have a clue to be able to project out to, hey, what's my life going to be like, and what are my goals 10 years from now regarding something like gender affirmation therapy, it's beyond them. It's impossible to have truly informed consent. And we keep hearing account after account from all over the country and other countries of parents parents being browbeaten and bullied by the mental health experts and the doctors with, you know, these uh, intimidation lines, uh, emotional blackmail, like, well, do you want a live son or a dead daughter? You know, this kind right. of thing. Right. So, of course, what's a parent to do? Well, and let me tell you, for any parent who has a child who has said, I want to kill myself or I'm depressed. Boy, oh, that is a very strong motivator. It is really the sort of Damocles sure. when you're dealing with a parent's emotions like that. Do we find that there is a correlation between individuals, adolescents who don't get whatever the desired therapy is and increase in suicidal ideation? Or is that really sort of a manipulative ploy? Well, it's a manipulative ploy, and in some degree, it's a coached response. You know, mm. uh, when people look back on things and say, well, I have all these problems, and my, if I'd gotten my puberty blocking when I needed it, this wouldn't have happened. So, you know, the catch-all of uh, um, uh, transgenderism uh, meets its cure-all of gender affirmation therapy and, and its deception. Uh, no, the literature does not support gender affirmation therapy long-term reducing suicide, hospitalizations from suicide or anything else. And I've looked 
at several studies that just you know came out since the fall uh, claiming one way or another that it did and our team was able to, to look at these things and pretty easily take them apart in fact we uh, have a couple of letters to the editors of uh, professional journals going through the peer review process now let's uh, hope and pray they get published yes well so my question is you have an entire movement sort of this crescendo of a wave running toward the hard left and in this case the identitarianism of sexuality and gender and its fluidity again introducing a completely new term gender fluidity who would have thought or gender spectrum I grew up understanding sex to be binary men and women but again we have the introduction of a new term and the sort of elevation of preferred manners of doing things and ultimately thought policing because we We know what happens with dissension. This is strictly the newest iteration of that. And I have spoken to physicians who are on staff at teaching medical colleges who have said, once I retire, I can come help and you can connect me with other doctors. However, I will lose my job and I am in the process of having to pay for my own kids' education right now. So I need to kind of hold off. Let me ask you this. So among those who study the issue like you, do we have long-term longitudinal studies on the effects of some of this medication on these adolescents? You know, the best studies show the worst results. Most of the truly long-term stuff is on uh, sex reassignment surgery, you know, so-called gender affirmation surgery, the very best of which, uh, 2011 out of Sweden, uh, the, the, the Denny study, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, but they looked at everybody in Sweden who transitioned over 30 years, 324 people, and they found that 10 years out, the completed suicide rate was 19 times that of the general population. That doesn't sound like an improvement. And in wow. terms of you know the stats that we get quoted about suicide attempts and, and ideation uh, from, from gender minority students, um, the, the good studies... Uh, that were, in fact, done by some of the same organizations that are promulgating the poor ones, um, show that the rate of suicide ideation in attempts is the same as it is for bullied kids, for um, gay and lesbian-identified kids, and for kids with mental health problems, which Mm. is, you know, bad, but not as bad as we're being led to believe. Again, I'm not trying to minimize that aspect of it, but, you know, again, the emotional blackmail that you trans me or I will kill myself, right. that obviously shows either someone who's, you know, being manipulative or coached, and we have therapists on tape uh, that, you know, said they coach kids to bring out the suicide card because it gets quick results, you know. Um, either that or else it's a kid who's truly in crisis. If someone is genuinely suicidal, they need to be seen. They need yes. to be in an emergency room. They need to be in a mental health office. They don't need to be in a hormone clinic because, you know, applying hormones and surgery does absolutely nothing to change what's between your ears. Right. Right. Exactly. This isn't a physical problem. It isn't a developmental problem. It is truly a mental issue, whether or not this rises to the level of gender identity dysphoria or whether or not there is gender confusion, give it whatever moniker you want, based on what the DSM is now using, we know that this occurs in the mind and that no one is born into the wrong body. And I think that's a refrain we ought to continue to use. So in the two minutes here that we have left, let's say a listener is listening and they have a child who's expressed gender confusion or identifies as transgender. What's your recommendation to a parent who's dealing with this in their own home? 
Well, number one, don't panic. Number two, uh, you keep those lines of communication open. Your child should know that they can share absolutely anything with you without mm -hmm. you freaking out. Be a listening sponge. Um, there's material that you should look up pretty promptly. Uh, the Parents Resource Guide at genderresourceguide.com. Fabulous yes. resource. Uh, the American College of Pediatricians at acpeds.org um, has a bunch of stuff under guidance for parents of children with gender identity distress. Uh, there's online parenting communities, excuse me, online parent support communities like kelseycoalition.org. Yes. Uh, there's lots of things available. Um, but just get into those, get some information, know that you're not alone, um, and learn how to talk to your kid and, and really keep those lines of communication open. Uh, it'll be surprising what you can find out when you, when you have their, their trust and their attention. Dr. Andre Von Moll, thank you so much for being with us today. A family physician and full-time practice and co-chair of the American College of Pediatricians Committee on Adolescent Sexuality. I'm going to quote someone far smarter than myself and from Dr. Von Moll's article of last year describing the transgender movement as a type of cultish religion. Robert George at Princeton explained that the gender ideology is truly Gnostic in its denial of physical reality in favor of an alleged overruling of knowledge plus feelings. And nowhere is there a recognition scientifically that feelings plus knowledge make for an appropriate diagnosis on which severe interventions must be employed, particularly not for adolescents. I have been Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday edition of Washington Watch. Dr. Van Mole was featured at Values Voter Summit on our transgender panel. Go to valuesvotersummit.org and click on 2019 archives to see the panel in its entirety. TonyPerkins.com, our website. Go there for more information about today's guests and resources. And we'll see you on Monday on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234.